The words of that song are incredible. Incredible biblical words. God of Abraham, you're the God of covenant. It's exactly uh, the message series that we're in right now. Talking about Abraham and covenant and trusting God. And if he speaks a word, it will come to pass. Alan, thank you so much. Appreciate that. And listen, let's get right to it. I've got a lot I want to say to you this morning. And I want to challenge you maybe in some fresh ways that you haven't been challenged before or in quite a while. Let me start right here. Being a part of a church community can be very intimidating. Let, let's get this off the table real quick. Uh, something we don't acknowledge all the time, but, but being a part of a church community brings some level of intimidation as you try to assimilate in or break in or, or be a part of what's going on. Uh, it's true of new believers trying to understand what it means to be a part of a spiritual community. Uh, they're trying to assimilate from the mindset of, hey, this is all new to me. You know, I, I'm, I don't come from a church background, and, and I'm trying to figure out what these people are like and what life is like being a part of a, of, a, of a community of believers. But it's also true of those who are just new in our community, and that's many of you here this morning. Uh, you're just new in the community, and you've come into the community because maybe a job transfer, or you've come down here to go to TCU or North Texas, or you know, school can cause you to relocate. Economic reasons can cause you to to relocate, and so relational reasons can cause you to relocate. And because of any number of things, you're moving into the community, and now you're trying to find a a, a church community to plug into. And, and when we do that. We all harbor thoughts about how we measure up with the other people in the room. Now, I wish it weren't true, but it is true. Uh, and, and it's true professionally. It's true in school with peer pressure. When you are introduced into a new community, you're like, okay, how do I fit in with these people? And, and specifically, how do I measure up to these people? I hear somebody pray and they pray so beautifully. Or I hear somebody you know, uh, talk about what they discovered in their Bible study, and I realize I can't pray like them. I don't see those things from God's Word yet. I hear people say, well, God spoke to me. I haven't heard that type of clear communication and direction from God in my life. This is new to me, or these people are new to me. And so here's what we start to think. I can never measure up. I, I, I'm not good enough. We begin to think everybody else is far ahead of me. I'll keep trying. I'll find you here in just a minute. The other Christians in my fellowship don't have the same struggles I have. I know what I struggle with, but nobody else here in the room struggles with that. It's just my brokenness and, and my baggage, and nobody would understand me. Sometimes we have thoughts that say this. I have sins in my life or in my past life. Maybe not my present life. Maybe there are things in my past life. But those things disqualify me from service. Because of some issue in my past, I'm not qualified to serve in the church or disciple someone. I'd be horrified to think that somebody's life would be just like my life. And it scares me when you start talking about investing and duplicating other people. I can't be a leader why I feel like such a hypocrite because of my past or my present struggle. Not worthy of being a role model. If you've ever had any of those thoughts, this is the exact reason 
that we want to study and be knowledgeable of the people who make up the Bible story. Because God is going to present to you a long list, a long parade of men and women, and their lives are going to be open, an open book for you to read. Now, isn't that terrifying? That your life would be an open book for someone to read. Now, the Old Testament especially is that open book where the people who call themselves, air quotes, God's people, their lives are put into the story of God's story, the Old Testament, and it's an open book, which means you're going to see the good and the bad. Let me say it this way. You need to see these people because the Bible is going to reveal their raw humanness. Unvarnished humanness. And that unvarnished telling of their life story and what they did and how they made decisions and what their attitudes were and how their lives fit into the big plan of God. That, that raw telling will open up a whole new realization for you about how to look at your own life, how to love yourself and respect yourself and care for yourself. You'll learn how you fit in God's story. You'll learn not to hate yourself. You'll learn not to dismiss yourself. You'll learn not to disqualify yourself. You'll learn that you are very much like the people called heroes of faith. Shocking, isn't it? You're going to learn that you're very much like the characters in the story of God's Bible. So, let's get right to it. We're studying from Hebrews, these Old Testament characters, so it just gives me a launching point. And now the author, the preacher of writing the long sermon in Hebrews, excuse me, the preacher introduces Abraham to us. Abraham took me last week, this week, and probably one more to tell the full story of Abraham. He is the main character of the book of Genesis. So, this is important stuff for you to file away. Abraham is the main character of the book of Genesis. He is the top tier, and by that I mean the top five, six, seven characters in the entire Bible. Okay? He is a top tier character. This is not a a bit player in the background. He's very much in the spotlight of the Bible story. You must... Know and understand Abraham and how he fits into the story if you ever intend to understand your Bible. You say, well, that's Old Testament. Okay, well, let me help you with this. The Bible makes in its entirety 314 references, direct references to Abraham by name. His name is called out 314 times in the Word of God. That's significant. But here's the shocker. Abraham's name is called 77 times. In the New Testament, telling you he's still a part of the story. And the New Testament writers are showing you why Abraham is a key player. And without understanding him, you're not going to understand the New Testament. His name is mentioned more than Matthew, Mark, Luke, Judas, Joseph, and Mary. That's a pretty significant player in the story, I would say. And his name is almost mentioned as many times as Moses. So now I'm going to go to Hebrews 11. And I'm going to read to you what the author is saying about Abraham. Here we go. Hebrews 11.8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, means called by God. Here's an important word. Obeyed. When he was called by God, he obeyed 
Watch these verbs. And he set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed. That was part of what God wanted him. He stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise. Living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob. These are son and grandson that we'll talk about in the coming weeks. Co-heirs of the same promise. Verse 10. For Abraham was looking which direction? Now, you're going to be tempted to tune me out at several times, and I'm going to try to bring you back. If you don't get anything else now, can you at least lock on to something you're learning about the life of Abraham and therefore about yourself? Which direction are we to be looking? You know what Paul said in the New Testament? Forgetting those things that are behind me, I press forward. Now, this is what we're talking about. You're looking at your life and saying, I keep looking backwards in my life and seeing what disqualifies me and what's broken. And the Word of God is trying to gently turn your eyes a different direction and saying, let's talk about where we're going next. Let's talk about a forward direction into the will of God and into the Word of God and into discipleship and into the future that I have promised for you. Now, the past is important because the writer of Hebrews takes us to the past, but it anchors us to the past So that we can turn and look forward. Here's what you need to know about Abraham. Abraham is a Gentile. At this reading. Well, at this reading I'm in Hebrews. But I'm going to go to Genesis in a minute. At Abraham when he steps onto the scene in Genesis. There's no such thing as a Jew. There is no such thing as an Israel. There is no such thing as a nation of God. There is no such thing as a people of God. There is no such thing as a Hebrew. All of that comes into creation with a covenant between God and Abraham. The whole point of Abraham is there is no people of God. God has no people. Eden (coughs) story went off the rails. The flood reset. Babel story goes off the rails. There is no people of God. That's the whole point. God wants a covenant people. There is no covenant people. God's like, oh, I'm so frustrated with humanity. I want to... Now, there's nations of people, but there's no God's people. There's no godly, there's no faith people. There's no covenant people of God. There's no people with a heart for God. So God says, I'm bound and determined to get this story back on track, the story of humanity. I intend to have a people... Song we just sang, God of Abraham, God of covenant... I intend to have a covenant people. So now the author of Hebrews is telling us about his faith. Abraham's faith. He obeyed. He went out. He stayed. He looked forward to what God was going to do. He looked forward to a city. He looked forward to a new humanity. A new renewed heaven and earth. And it's symbolized in the Bible as a city. Abraham was looking forward to a new city. You say, what is this new city? It's an idea. It's a new humanity. It's a new created heaven and earth. It's reset of the project to where God wants it to be. It's a resurrected humanity like Jesus Christ. Now here's the plot twist that keep coming. Plot twist. He's an old man. No, he's not an old man later in the story. He's an old man when he steps onto the stage. When God calls him in Ur of the Chaldees, he's already an old man. 
here. And we learn from the text that he's 75 years old when God calls him and says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. He and Sarah have no children. And at 75 now, think about being 75 here in our community. At 75 years of age, surrounded by his family and friends, in his community, he's a wealthy man. He has 75 years worth of ownership in that community. He has 75 years worth of equity built into the marketplace of Irv the Chaldees. He has 75 years worth of family connections, 75 years worth of a life lived in one place. And now God comes to him and is calling Abraham to walk away from 75 years of a life built in a community. I want you to abandon everything that you and your wife have built together And I want you to leave it all behind and go to a place that I'm not going to tell you where it's at yet, but I by faith want you just to trust me. And step out by faith and pack your bags and put it in the U-Haul and go down the road and I'll show you the place I want you to live and I'm going to give it to you for an inheritance. God's calling him to step out by faith in the future. Now, I just want to make a few applications along the way. Your future is going to be determined by your faith as well. Your future is going to be determined by your faith. And I want you to be thinking about what is standing in the way between you and the future God intends for you. God has a plan for your life, and I think most of you believe that. What's standing in the way between where you are right now and the the script that God has written for you? I mean, in God's perfect mind, what He wants for your life and where you are right now, what's standing in the way between those two things? And it's probably, the answer is, decisions. Faith. Being able to trust God and step out. Decisions to move forward. Willingness to put the past behind me. Willingness to trust God. So now, I leap from the New Testament to the Old now, and I'm going to Genesis, the first book, written by Moses, and I'm going to read to you the story of Abraham. Genesis 12:1. And the Lord said to Abram, so for those of you who weren't raised in church, quick note right here, you're going to see Abram and you're going to see Sarai. It's Abraham and Sarah somewhere in the story, which I don't have time to tell. God changes their names because it's meaningful. The names have meaning. And he's changing their names to fit. Here's who you are, but here's who I want you to be. A king and a princess and a father of many nations. And he changes their names. So don't be confused. It's Abraham and Sarah when you see it. The Lord said to Abraham, go out from your land. Go out from your relatives. Go from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make into you a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. Here's the part that the American dream always leaves out. In the American dream... The storyline is get all you can, get to the top, get more square feet, get more cars, get better cars, get money, get get wealth, get comfort, make your life comfortable, make your life secure, get everything you can. The American dream and the capitalist dream is about getting. The biblical dream is about getting in order to give to others. It's about getting... Just imagine me as a vessel being filled with blessings and I'm filled and I get to enjoy those blessings, sure, but now the blessings begin to overflow 
And as the cup overflows, it blesses everyone in my community. It blesses the people around me. It blesses my children and my grandchildren. It blesses my neighbors. It blesses my faith community. It blesses my civic community. I become not only blessed, but I become a blessing. That's what God wants for you. God doesn't want you to be poor. Now, I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher. You guys know that. But I don't think it's God's plan for you to be poor and hungry. I think it's God's plan to bless you. But we've got to be smart enough to take the blessings of God and use them wisely and learn that God's not just blessing us to make us comfortable. God's blessing us so that we can be like God and be a blessing. That's that angled mirror, image of God type of concept that the Bible is teaching us. So, God says to him, I'm going to bless those that bless you. And I'm going to curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Not just the the family we're going to create. All the people of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Now that's quite a legacy to leave. You know what I'm saying? I'd like to have left a legacy that somebody was blessed by my life. But it'd be awesome to be able to say you left planet earth, you know, and everyone was blessed by your life. That's quite a lofty thing to say about someone. Verse 4, so Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot, that's his nephew, went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. So here's what I want you to see. Here's what you're seeing in the story. You're seeing a man and his wife who are willing to walk away from everything they've been building for 75 years in order to live by faith and in order to say yes to God. Now, yes is an important word at Cornerstone. Living by faith is being willing to trust God when you're not able to make the calculations work out. You and I have some big unanswered questions about a future that we don't know. Surely you have some big questions about a future you don't know. But it doesn't dismantle us, doesn't cause us grief and anxiousness, Because we are trusting the future to an even bigger God that we do know. You know God has always been faithful. He's the God of promises and He's always been faithful. God has always been good to you. God has always been there to make your crisis work out in the end. Listen, there has always been enough in your life. Because God has always been enough in your life. You are His child. David said, I've never seen the righteous hungry or begging bread. God has cared for His people. It doesn't mean you'll never have hard times, but it means there will always be a God looking out for you and carrying you and caring for you. Listen, on the authority of, of a life lived following Christ and on the authority of the Word of God, I can tell you that God will be enough and that God is a provider. It's really next week's lesson. God is a provider. He loves to do good things for His children. Here's what James said. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. God delights to bless His children. So you're to live every day actively listening as God is speaking direction and transformation into your life. And I can tell you with just absolute confidence, God will care for His children. Now there's the early part of the story from Genesis. Now you're introduced by the writer of Hebrews, to the wife of Abraham. Her name is Sarah. 
I go back to Hebrews to read now. Hebrews 11, 11. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Now, the author of Hebrews is saying it wasn't about biology because biologically, the clock had stopped ticking a long time ago. Biologically, she was past the age of conception, but she didn't focus on that. She considered the person who promised she was going to have a child. She didn't consider biology. She considered theology. And when God said, ma'am, you're going to have a child in your old age, she said, God's bigger than that. And I'm going to have a child in my old age. She believed that she was going to have a child. Watch verse 12 now. Therefore, from one man, talking about Abraham again, her husband. In fact, from a man as good as... You're talking about raw humanness. How would you like somebody to say that about you? Oh, he's so old. How old? He's good as dead. What do we say? One foot in the grave. It's kind of our colloquialism. And so now this is the writer of Hebrews' way of just impressing with, I guess, humor or whatever upon you. Listen, he was as good as dead. That's how old he was. And yet from a man as good as dead came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. All right, you ready for some plot twists? Here they come. Plot twist. I'll show it to you in a minute. Sarah is Abraham's half-sister. <laughs> and if you're saying, yikes, he married his sister. Ugh. Well, how do we in 2020 in a Christian church deal with this situation? Right now, in this message is where you're about to learn something about how to read the Bible. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. These are ancient days, and these are ancient ways. And what you're reading in the book of Genesis needs to be put in its context. The Bible is not prescriptive for all behavior. The Bible is not prescriptive for all behavior. Especially these ancient customs that we find completely unacceptable in our society today. The Bible is not written with the intent that you should emulate everything you read. Now for some of you this is coming as a shock. Because you thought you were supposed to open the Bible and be like these people. That is not why the Bible was given to you. You are not to open the Bible... And follow the behavior of everyone you see in the Bible. That's exactly not the intent that the Bible was written for. I meet many people who in conversations, they'll say to me, Pastor, I always follow the Bible. No, you don't. And we thank God that you don't. You do not always follow the Bible. You pick and choose which of the Bible you're going to follow based on what's acceptable and applicable to you. And you need to know about yourself. You pick and choose what you're going to follow. 
Matter of fact, you may pick a verse to follow and right above it's a verse you wouldn't follow at all. And so the Christian church needs to be having some discussions about this on how you know what to follow, how you know what to pick and choose. Uh, we had a small group at our home <coughs> in the last year, and we studied through a book that talks about how to discern what of the Bible is for me to follow and what is just, I'm, 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 a, I'm a viewer watching characters play out something on a stage that I'm not supposed to follow. I'm going to say it again. The Bible was not written with the intent that you would emulate everything in the Bible that you're reading. So when someone says, Pastor, I follow the Bible, no, that you really don't. You follow some of the Bible, and hopefully you follow the parts that God wants you to follow. Hopefully you're not emulating all of these unacceptable behaviors that we're reading about in the Bible. Now, the New Testament writers of Hebrews, for example, he is writing 2,000 years after Abraham. So Abraham, 2,000 years go by, and now in the New Testament... The author of Hebrews is writing, and he's hearkening back to Abraham in his story. Hebrews 11, these are the heroes of faith. As he hearkens back to Abraham in the book of Hebrews, he is not saying to you that you need to do all of the things that Abraham did. The New Testament writer is holding Abraham up to you as an example, and he's saying, do this one thing that Abraham did right, live by faith. Trust God like Abraham over there trusted God 2,000 years ago. He's not saying parent like Abraham. He's not saying husband like Abraham. He's not saying be ethically like Abraham. He's saying live by faith and trust God like Abraham trusted God. Let me go further. Abraham and Sarah's marriage is not a marriage that you should emulate. Absolutely not. I forbid you to emulate their marriage. Now I'm going to go even further out on a limb. You would struggle to find one good model of marriage in the entire Old Testament. Christian, you would do well to avoid all Old Testament examples and find you a good marriage role model right here in our church. The story of Abraham and Sarah is not presented to you so that you will emulate their parenting style. They made incredible mistakes as parents. They did things you should never do as parents. Their parenting reveals blatant favoritism, strife between multiple wives, strife between the siblings, jealousy on the part of everyone. Do not parent like them. Listen, parent like Jeremy and Erica. Parent like Jeff and Letty. Parent like Sean and Mary. I could just go around the room. We have hundreds of wonderful examples in this room that are way better role models for parenting than anything you're going to read on the pages of your Old Testament and most of your New. Now remember, the Bible was not written to you. There's no book in the Bible that says, to the cornerstones of Fort Worth, greetings and grace be unto you. I, Paul, say to you, there's nothing like that. The Bible was written to other people in another era, in another context. 
And you have to use discernment on to, to get the story that the Bible's trying to tell. It was not written to you, but it has been preserved for you. And, and that's not a small thing. It's been preserved for you so that you could extract God's message from it. The author of Genesis, let me go over here, Moses, he's telling Israel right there in the wanderings the backstory of why there's a nation of Israel. The author of Genesis is telling the back, here's how we got an Abraham and a covenant people of God and you are those people, okay? Say it again. The author of Genesis is telling the backstory of Israel. That's the story he intends to tell. He's not trying to tell you all about the intricacies of creation. He's not trying to tell you all about the intricacies of the, you know, uh, antediluvian world. He hops from mountain peak to mountain peak to tell the backstory of Israel. Now I'm going to come over here to the New Testament. The author of Hebrews gets that. What we missed, he got, or she got, whoever wrote it. The author of Hebrews understands that the author of Genesis, Moses, is not trying to tell you everything about everything. He's trying to tell you one thing, the backstory of why there's an Israel. So the author of Hebrews comes along and he says, I'm going to use his examples, but I'm telling a different story. I want to take his characters and put them into the point I'm trying to make. Is this making any sense to you guys? So the author of Hebrews says, I'm going to go grab that Abraham guy that Moses told us about, and I want to make a different point than Moses was making. Moses is showing you ancestry from a patriarch, fatherhood. I'm trying to show you something different. So the author of Hebrews is telling a story about living by faith. And so he says, I want to use Abraham in my story but I want to put him up here under the spotlight and I'm not going to talk about any of his warts and any of his sin. I just want to say do this one thing that Abraham did. Live by faith. Who when a man heard a word from God, he said, that's a word from God. That's all I need. I will act and obey upon the word of God. That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to get you to be. Hear a word from God. Have faith in God. Live as if God is real. Live as if heaven is real. Live if it's all... Uh, listen, the things that are unseen are absolutely as real as the things that are seen. That's what he's trying to say to you. You've never seen God. He's real. Never seen the Holy Spirit. He's real. He's living in you. You've never seen these eternal things, but they're real. Live as if they are real. And the New Testament author of Hebrews is not saying to you, emulate everything about Abraham or emulate everything about Sarah. Just emulate this one thing. Because when you live by faith, it overwhelms everything else in your life. And in the end, those who live by faith win God's approval. You say, yeah, but what about all the junk and the sin? Faith overcomes all of that. By faith, God saw them and He counted their faith as righteousness. You say, well, I could never live up to being like these people. These people are really perfect. So I have to dismantle that argument in your mind, which brings me to pivot points. Pivot points are critical moments when a decision or a choice sends our life in a whole new direction. 
I should be thinking about your own life now and things that happened in your life that suddenly sent it in a different direction. Pivot point can be a good thing. A pivot point could be a bad thing. A, a, a pivot point could be a choice you made, good or bad. It could be an event, something that happened, a dramatic thing that happened in your life. A pivot point in most of your lives will be when you first met that someone who was going to be your lifelong mate and the mother of your children and the father of your children and the companion of your life. It becomes a turning point in your life. Nothing will ever be the same again now that you've met the one. Or it could be, turning point could be when you sent that resume in and the phone rang or the email came or the text came and you went to that interview. That could have been a change of course in your life when you got that dream job and started in that new career. For all of us, I would say that receiving Christ becomes the most dramatic turning point in our life where everything changes. And second to that probably should be the moment you got into discipleship and somebody came to walk beside you and begin to speak into your life and helped you hear the Spirit's voice and hear the Word of God and discern what the Christian life was and your life began to take a whole new direction through salvation and through discipleship. But a pivot point could also be choices you made, bad choices. You make some bad choice, send your life spiraling off in some direction, and you wake up like the prodigal, and you're looking around and saying, how did I get here? Well, a few bad decisions is all it took, and your life went in a whole different direction. Listen, it could be an accident. Listen, murder has touched the lives of some of our church members. Loved ones murdered, loved ones in an accident. I get a cancer diagnosis. You see what I'm saying? I mean... Man, it just becomes a deflection point, a pivot point in your life, and things become completely different. So what I want to show you right now is that Abraham understands his role in God's story. God appears to Abraham and says, come out of your people, I'm going to make of you a God's people, I'm going to have you be a covenant people, there are no people of God, and it frustrates me that creation has run amok and rebelled against me. I created creation so that there would be a people of God in fellowship, in reflection of me, reflecting me to the world and the world back to me in worship. And that doesn't exist. Abraham, that's what I want. And I'm calling you to be the beginning of God's people. Abraham understands his role is to be the father of God's people. He is to go to a land that God will give him, and he is to stay in the land and God will bless him, and he's to wait there and trust God for a son. That's his script that's been handed to him by God. That's his part to play in the story of God. And Abraham fully understands his role. Now I'm going to show you where Abraham hits a pivot point. Abraham hits a pivot point when he goes outside the storyline that God has written for him. Abraham's story starts to go wrong when Abraham goes off script, forgets his role, takes his eyes off God, and instead puts his eyes on markets and inflation and shortages and rising prices. And when he sees all that's going on in the community and world around him, he has a weak moment of faith And he begins to distrust God for the future. Now I'm reading from the book of Genesis chapter 12. There was a famine in the land. There's all that Moses tells you. But you understand what that means. Economic downturn. Economic crisis. There was a famine in the land. 
And so Abraham went down to Egypt to stay there for a while. Why? Because things were definitely better in Egypt, I guess. He goes down to the world for some help because the famine in the land, promised land, was severe. Now, when you read that at a, at a cursory glance, you say, well, that seems legit. But what's really layered here is he's mistrusting that God can care for his family. A man who is supposed to live by faith. And when he begins to mistrust that God can care for him in the midst of a pandemic, can you make some application here? When he begins to mistrust that God can take care of him, when you can't find the resources and you can't find what you need and you're worried about how life's going, when he begins to mistrust God, he begins to go off of his storyline. He forgets his roles and he puts his eyes on the wrong thing. And it seems legit, but the motive is, is a turning point. This becomes a turning point. A famine becomes the turning point for the marriage of Abraham and Sarah. It becomes a turning point into how they fit into God's story. So they pack up everything and they go down to Egypt. Now, God's big story that he's trying to tell in the book of Genesis is almost derailed when Abraham's faith gives way to fear here. And what ultimately happens, I'm about to read it to you, is Abraham allows his wife Sarah to be taken into Pharaoh's harem. Everybody understand harem? All right, here we go. Genesis 12, verse 11. When Abraham was about to enter into Egypt, he said to his wife Sarah, Look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes I think conservative Christians think the uglier we are, the more holy we are. You know, the more plain we are, the more frumpy we are, the more God-honoring we are. Listen, beauty's called out where beauty exists, certainly in the Scriptures. And so Abraham, you say, well, he's just his wife and he's calling her beautiful. No, you'll see in a minute, everybody who sees her says she's beautiful. This is a knockout, okay? You say, ooh, she's an old lady. I don't know what to do with that, but I'm just reading the story. I didn't write it. I'm just the teller, okay? When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And when we go down to Egypt here and they see you, they're going to say, holy smokes, she's a 10. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. This is his wife. And they will kill me in order to get you. They're going to kill me in order to get you. They'll let you live, but they'll kill me. Verse 13. When we get to Egypt, please say that you're my sister. So it will go well for me. I don't want to get murdered over you being a 10. So please say you're my sister and it'll go well for me because of you and my life will be spared on your account. When Abraham entered Egypt, verse 14, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. This is not just a husband flattering his wife. When the Egyptians saw her beauty, it went all the way up to the king. Look at 15. Pharaoh's officials saw her and said, Pharaoh, there's a ten in the community, and you might want to bring her into your harem. And so she was taken to Pharaoh's household, 16. And he treated Abraham very well because of her. He's trying to buy the sister. He treated Abraham very well, and Abraham acquired, watch this list, flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, Male and female slaves and camels. I wonder how many camels he got for his wife. I have a sister. 
And how many donkeys? Say you're my sister, don't, they'll kill me. And instead they start giving him gifts. 17, but the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh sent for Abraham and said, watch these words, from potentially a, an unsaved man to a saved man, a man of faith, watch this stinging words. What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Where did Pharaoh get that information? In a vision from God. What did you do to me, Christian? Why have you defrauded me? Why didn't you just tell me the truth, Christian, that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? Dude, I took her into my harem to be one of my wives. Now take your wife and get out of my country. I'm embarrassed for Abraham and Sarah. Now, a minute ago, you were telling me that you were intimidated by the Bible characters because you could never be as good as them. Are you seeing the raw humanness now? Have you ever sold your wife? Have you ever lied, you know, went to a, you know, went to a party and, and said, now, you know, tonight let's lie to everybody at the party. We'll tell them we're brother and sister. We'll have a good time scamming everybody here. And I might be able to sell you and make get lots of money. For, that's like pimps and prostitution going on here. Yep. You say, who is this? The father of faith is who this is. You say, well, pastor, you're just ripping this guy up and shredding him. I'm just reading the story. So here's what happens. They get out of Egypt with their tail between their legs. Their witness is ruined. You know what, if Abraham and Sarah had done the right thing and they had gone down there to do the right thing, they could have said, we're here because there's a famine and we, we need some short-term help and we'll get out of your country and leave you alone. And maybe they could have had an audience with Pharaoh because he's, Abraham's a rich man when he goes down there. He's somebody. He's a local king. And so Abraham could have maybe witnessed to Pharaoh over a nice dinner and told him about how God had called him to be the people of God and live by faith. But he can't witness to Pharaoh now, could he? You think you could witness to Pharaoh after you pimped your wife to him? Hey, let me talk to you, Pharaoh, about your sins. And how Christ died for you. You think that's going to work out? Now, I hope you're making application to your work in your school right now. Because when you misbehave publicly at work and school, neither can you witness. Your witness is destroyed in that moment. You can't tell people how to find forgiveness of their sins when you're living in your blatant open lies and sins before them. And I'm not saying take your sins underground where nobody can see them. I'm saying live by faith and don't be like Abraham and Sarah in this moment. Now, they get it right, okay? They get the situation all worked out and they go back to the promised land and they're determined they're going to go reconnect with God and start living by faith. And for them, this involves going back to a place in the promised land called Bethel. I'm reading from Genesis 13. And Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev wilderness, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, nephew. Abraham was very rich in livestock, silver and gold. He went by stages from Negev finally to Bethel, to a place between Bethel and Ai, or Ai, however that's pronounced, where his tent had formerly been. He went back to Bethel where his tent had formerly been to the site where he had built the altar and Abraham had called on the name of the Lord there. And he called upon the name of the Lord again there. Now, let me give you the breakdown quickly. i got to move. Beth 
El is the way it is in the Hebrew language. Beth Lehem, house of bread. Beth, house, El, God. Beth El is, means the house of God. So Abraham leaves Egypt and he says, oh, we're going to get our lives right with God. We're going back to the house of God. And Bethel was the place he had formerly built an altar. Bethel was the place he had formerly worshipped God. Now, what you're reading in the Bible, I want to make an application to you right here. This would be similar to when you and I get mad over some petty thing and we get our feelings hurt and we have unrealistic expectation of others and unrealistic expectations of the church and we run away in frustration. And we've all been there. You've been saved long enough. You've been there to where at some point your feelings get hurt. Something happens. You're like, I'm done with church. I'm done with church. And it's usually in a moment of crisis. Usually when you should run to people for help, you run away and you put walls up. I'm done with church, we say. But then later, later, we get our hearts right and we repent, which means to turn around, and we go back to where we can renew our walk with God in order to go forward. We go back to connect with God in order that we can move forward in our lives and in our faith. We have to go back to God where we left God and we have to do that in order to be able to go forward. So to return to Bethel is an ancient equivalent of me saying to you, come back to God. Repent. Go back to where you used to worship. Go back to where you used to pray. Go back to where you used to give. Go back to where you used to serve. And in each one of our lives, we all are going to face moments like this, where we realize we are outside of the story that God has scripted for us. And we've made choices that have sent us grappling and struggling to figure out the mess in our lives And we find ourselves living no different than an unsaved world thinks and acts around us. We find ourselves, as God's children, living in those moments like practical atheists. We're living as though God wasn't real, and as though He didn't exist, and though His Word was unreliable. But God is faithful. This is what we learn from the Scripture. God is faithful. So what God does in this generation is He sent His Spirit to live in our hearts And in a moment when you realize you're off script, you're going to hear God's Spirit speaking in your heart. And you're going to hear the Spirit of God saying to you, come back. Come back to me. Come back to worship. Come back to service. And we'll protest and say, but God, I'm not worthy. I've done such a mess. God says, I didn't say anything about you being worthy. I'm going to cover that. If you repent, come back. Come back to Bethel. If you're already God's faith people, but you're not in a covenant relationship with other believers, or maybe you're new in the community, as I said earlier, I want you to let faith rise in your heart. And I want you to start making some righteous decisions today. There should be a Bethel in your life. As a matter of fact, you can have more than one Bethel, more than one place that signifies my relationship with God. But I want to say to you, surely this place right here should be Bethel to you. You say, how can you say that, Pastor? Because you're here. And you're not here by accident, you're here by the leading of God. And if God has led you to this place, this is 
your Bethel. It is a place that faith has brought you to. And what our responsibility is, is to make this a place where I can worship God. This is going to be my place where I can pray with God's people. This is going to be that place in my life where I can serve side by side with God's people. These are the people. Listen to what I'm saying. These are the people that you should allow inside the walls of your life. That's always a scary thing to let people in. I know these people. These are the people you should let inside your life. They will do you no harm and they will do you immense good. They will love you and they will lift you and they will walk with you and they will not sermonize at you. They will not say, be a good Christian. They'll say, let me show you how to be a good Christian. They will not demand that you love and you live by faith. They will say, take my hand. I'll show you how to love and I'll show you what it means to live by faith. So Abraham and Sarah go back to Bethel. They re-engage with God and you're like, woo, everything's good, right? Okay, not quite. For a while, but not quite. Abraham's getting impatient with God's timing. He's getting older by the day. The plan now of God is almost derailed when Abraham says, I've got a genius idea. It's culturally acceptable that if you don't have children, you take a servant born in your house and you adopt him and name him as your heir. Uh, Julius Caesar did this with his nephew. (laughs) Augustus wasn't a servant, but it was a nephew. And so Abraham says, I'll just call the attorney and we'll draft up new documents and I will name Eliezer of Damascus, Eliezer will be my servant, and I'll now na- I'll name him as my son. God, I'll help you out. Since you can't get us pregnant, and you're not powerful enough, watch what I'll do. I'll give you a boost, God. And so he says, I'll step in and fix the mess that God's created. Now, probably not that blatantly, but you understand what's happening. And you and I don't do it that blatantly either. You don't go home and shake your fist at God and tell him you're going to work it all out. But instead, you try to do the things that Abraham's doing right now. We just call it something different, okay? (laughs) And so, Abraham starts the wheels in motion, Genesis 15. And Abraham continued, Look, you've given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. He's telling God how it's going to be. Well, that's dangerous. And now the word of the Lord came to Abraham. This one, Eliezer, will not be your heir. Negatory, Abraham. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. I'm going to give you a child through the natural process. Well, supernatural meets natural. However you want to say it, you're as good as dead. But he's going to come from you. Okay? So God says, look, dude, I love you. Come outside. Five. He took him outside and he said, look at the sky and count the stars. See, now this would never work in your context. You want to try it tonight? Go outside and count the stars. Seven. Oh, wait, five of them were airplanes. Uh, Maybe a plane too, satellite. One, I see. See, this wouldn't work in your context. But in the era of no light pollution and no factories, Abraham went out there and saw the Milky Way. You know what I'm saying? And God said, count the stars if you can. 
And he said, God, no way. Fantastic. And God said, your children are going to be like that. That's what I'm going to do through you. Watch verse 6. And Abraham believed the Lord. Now he's living by faith again. What is living by faith? Hearing a word from God and believing the word of God and God are real. Real. And he heard the word of the Lord and Abraham believed God. And what was it counted? Righteousness. Right standing before God. Why? Because you believed God. Faith arises in Abraham and he gets his heart right. And he and Sarah start living right again. And things go well for some time. But now the plan almost gets derailed again. You say, Pastor, it's a roller coaster. You have no idea. It'll take me next week to finish it. You have no idea. The plan almost gets derailed again, but this time it's Sarah who hears her biological clock ticking and says, we have got to get this done. So she conspires a way to help God out. God, you can't seem to get this done and touch my womb and help me conceive, so I've got a plan. I'll go get my slave and put her into Abraham's bed. I'll just read it to you. Genesis 16. Abraham's wife, Sarah, had not borne any children But she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarah said to Abraham, Since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go into my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. So Abraham's wife, Sarah, took Hagar, the slave, and gave her to her husband Abraham as a wife for him. This happened after Abraham lived in Canaan for 10 years. For Abraham just, boy, he cliff notes this. He slept with her, she became pregnant. Well, the problem's definitely on Sarah's side, then it? He slept with her, she became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, she despised Sarah. I got something you don't got. You say, that's childish. It looks pretty childish when I read it to you. Let it play out. Hagar's now pregnant, so all their problems are solved, right? Abraham's going to have a child through Hagar. It's all going to work out. No, the plan gets mucked up even further. When jealousy and tension escalate between Sarah, wife one, and Hagar, wife number two, to the point that Sarah, wife number one, demands that Abraham outcast wife number two. I'm reading from verse 5. Then Sarah said to Abraham, You are responsible for my suffering. You did this. You dirty old man. You're responsible for the mess I'm in. She knows it's not true. Watch her own statement. I put my slave in your arms. And when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord's judge between me and you. You dirty rat. Like you, sometimes, Abraham's like, what did I do? I thought I did exactly what you wanted me to do. And Abraham replied to Sarah, here, your slave is in your hands. Wait a second, she's not a slave anymore, she's now your wife. Boy, if anybody ever got messed up, it's old Hagar. Got jacked around in this deal for sure. 
Abraham says, okay, let's take her from wife status and bump her back down to slaves. That's kind of hard to undo, isn't it? And bump her back down to slave status, and you do to her whatever you want to do to her. Watch what Moses says. Then Sarah mistreated her so much that she ran away. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not emulate these people. Their lives are a train wreck of what not to do. And I want to say to you further that going around the plan of God will never turn out the way you think it's going to turn out. You think, oh, I'll do this and it's going to solve all my problems. It's never going to play out when you go around God the way you think it's going to work out. And when the misery piles onto your life because of your bad choices, we immediately tend to shift blame to others. Look what you did to me, Abraham. You're the cause of all my misery. And I can't tell you how many times every one of us have done something similar to that. You have a terrible day. Who do you yell at when you get home? Your wife, the only person in your life that loves you that closely. Can you make any sense of that? But it's what we do. Or your husband or your kids. You have a terrible day and you yell at your kids. Your your kids are just being kids and they love you and you love them. Why do we project our frustration onto people we love? I don't know, but it's part of our sinful fallenness, I guess. When we're confronted with our bad choices, we're like, well, my spouse, my friends, the church is not meeting my needs. Wait, the church loves you as much as anybody could love you. The best course of action when you're in a moment like this is to confront your own bad decisions and own them. Now, I know it's gone long now. I'm about to wrap here in just a minute. Listen to me carefully. When you find yourself in misery because of your bad decisions, the course of action is own them. Say to God, I own this mess that I've made. Own it. Repent of it. And move forward in faith. But sometimes you will also have to include and ask forgiveness from all the people that are caught up in the drama now. Also. So I I want you to know it's not just a matter of I can get right with God. Now you have to get right with Sarah and Abraham and Hagar and and Ishmael and I. Now you're going to have to get right with Eliezer in a bigger circle because you've made your mess into a bigger mess. And so sometimes you need to be aware that when I do the wrong thing, I can I need to move forward with God, but also need to look at the circle of community around me that I got into my mess drama and say, hey, I let my drama spill over onto you. I'm sorry. I've got that right. I'm making better decisions. I'm moving forward in faith. Now, let me fast forward the story for sake of time here. God intervened. Hagar ran away. She's out in the wilderness with no water and no food, and the sun's baking down 120 degrees in the desert, and, and, and she's about to die. She's got a baby inside of her, pregnant, on the lamb, running for her life because she's being mistreated. And God appears to her, and he says, go home. Now, this is very shocking. I want you to return to Abraham and Sarah. I'm going to take care of you. Go back to Abraham and Sarah. Now, listen to this. Not go back and be abused. Go back because I'm working on Abraham and Sarah's heart and they're going to get right with you. Sometimes Bethel is also part of coming back and getting right with others. And trusting that God is working on their heart as much as he's working on your heart. 
You say, all right, they got it all worked out. Happy family, right? Well, things go along fine until Abraham falls back into his own sinful patterns again. Now, listen carefully. Old ways will mean different things to each one of us. We all came up differently and our circumstances are different. But know this about yourself. There are some old ways that you are particularly susceptible to. And it's easy to fall out of fellowship and back into old sinful ways. You are predisposed to stuff. I believe that. Your family gave you some baggage. You may come from a long line of fill in the blank. I came from a long line of wife abusers, a long line of alcoholics, a long line of, uh, uh, of drunks, a, lo- a long line. I came from a long line of a lot of things. Susan comes from a long line of drug addicts. There's some things we have to be very careful with in our lives because we know what our genetic parents have given to us and we have to be very careful to smash some things and nail them to the cross. Some of you come from a long line of angry people and your temper. Some of you come from a long line of bad decision makers. You look at some of your kinfolk, it couldn't make a good decision to save their lives. You inherited some of that. You're going to have to nail that to the cross. You're going to have to break old patterns. You're going to have to lean upon the Holy Spirit of God to help you overcome those old sinful patterns that are easy to cycle back into. Watch what happens to Abraham. Genesis 20, verse 1. From there, Abraham traveled to the region of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. And while he was staying in Gerar... Abraham said about his wife, say it out loud. You're like, what the what, Abraham? Dude, what what are you doing? You read that verse. He said, she is my sister, so the king Abimelech took her into the harem. Listen, you you want to grab Abraham by the shoulders and shake him real hard and say, what, did you learn nothing from the past cycle you just came through? Come on, man, stop the deception and just trust God. Stop the deception and just trust God. God will take care of you, ladies and gentlemen. God is the God of covenant. (laughs) He is the God of relationship. You are God's people. He will care for you. And so you find yourself cheering for Abraham. Come on, man. Smash those old cycles, Abraham. Stop lying. He's predisposed to this. Stop it and break out of that. And if you are frustrated with Abraham in the story, then I want to flip the script on you this morning and I want you to insert yourself in the story. What about your own life is demonstrating faith to the world around you? Do your coworkers and family and friends and classmates see a person living by faith, confident in God for tomorrow, looking forward to the future, knowing that God's in control? Let me say it to you a different way. What cycle are you stuck in? What sinful behavior, what, what pattern every few years do you seem to be stuck in? Baptists in particular in Texas are stuck in a three-year cycle of church hopping. They get mad about one thing, hop to another church. They will not be there more than three years. And then they'll be off. Clergy in America is stuck in about a two-year, one to two-year cycle. 
They pastor. They get some relational issues in the church. Pastors gone to greener pastures. This is plaguing God's people in this state and in this country. Why? We can't work forward through our issues by faith. We are stuck in cycles of brokenness. Let me me tell you a family story. I I may have told you this before. Mom came to me. She says, Bobby, I want to go buy a new car. This was a couple of years ago. I want to upgrade this and go, go get a new vehicle. I said, great, I'll go with you. And help you buy a new car. I know when I say that, it's going to be like a three-day ordeal, you know. And uh, I don't know if you hate buying a car as bad as I do. Buying it on the internet now and having to deliver it to your house is a whole new world for all of us. So, uh, more to come. Uh, so, we start going to dealerships because you've got to figure out, you know, exactly what you want. And, you know, do I want a Ford? Do I want it? Nobody wants a Ford. But do I, want a Sh- I don't want a Chevy. Do I want a Dodge? Do I want an Acura? What do I want? So, we start driving around and, and test driving cars. We get into a car. And, of course, you know, they give us the keys, they take it for hours. You're driving an Acura over here, and and they had just done construction down here on Riverside and and through that area over there behind Restaurant Row. And so I'm in the passenger seat, mom's in the driver's seat, there's a salesman behind us in the back seat, probably holding on for dear life, and mom drives out of the parking lot and starts test driving this Acura SUV. And, uh, uh, you know, when my family test drives cars, it's true of Susan, and it's true of mom both, you better buckle your seatbelt because they want to see what the zero to 60 rating is and what the braiding, braking rating is in the car. That's the way they're wired. And so we're riding with mom and, and she's test driving the car and, and she came into one of these roundabouts that were just built. Now mom's a good driver when she knows the terrain and there's no traffic. It's not raining. And it's daylight. I think that about covers it. And uh, she came into the roundabout pretty hot, hugged the inside left lane of the roundabout, and just held the wheel like this. And I'm like, Mom... In order to go forward, you're going to have to take a right turn at some point. You're stuck in the roundabout. And she's like, I've never been in a roundabout. I don't know what to do right now. I don't know if I should yield or if I should go. How do I get out of this? She was stuck in a cycle. And I'm sitting there watching it and I'm saying, from over where I'm... And I get it. I mean, you've probably been there. Especially if cars start coming on the other side of you. You're stuck in there for a couple of roundabouts. And I'm sitting with a different perspective over here, not to be critical, but all it takes is one right turn, and you're out of the cycle. Please hear what I'm saying to you this morning. You're one right turn away from a different future in your own life. You may be stuck in a cycle. It's common in the Scripture. Moses is showing you this intentionally. Why? So you'll grip the wheel by faith and take a right and trust God. You say, but I don't know where the right turn goes. And I'm comfortable right here because I know what this looks like. Yeah, but you're not moving forward with your life. You're repeating the same old mistakes and patterns you've been repeating. You say, I don't know how to get out. Put your right blinker on and start moving over. 
It's Sunday morning. It's time to make decisions. Make a right turn. Live by faith. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Now, I hope you're cheering for Abraham and I'm cheering for you this morning. And I'll finish his story next week. But I think we need to make some decisions here this morning based on what we've heard. This is decision time. You've heard enough this morning to be convicted of some issues in your own life. Faith is not just a general religious attitude. Faith is that which hears and believes God and acts upon it as though God were real and though the Word of God were true. God is presented as Creator, but He's also presented as Redeemer. He's going to build a new people in a renewed earth. And Abraham looked forward to the new city, the new earth, the new body, just as we do by faith this morning. And I'm asking you this morning to make some decisions. Failure is never final. As long as you're breathing, failure is never final. There is time to correct course this morning. Ask for forgiveness. If you've included other people in your drama of brokenness, then you may need to ask their forgiveness as well, but start with God. I'm asking you this morning that you make this your Bethel. I know on the authority of the Word of God that God is here. Where two or three are gathered in my name, Paul said, the Holy Spirit is here in the assembly of God's people. He's here. Now you just need to engage Him. Engage Him and say, God, this is like a Bethel moment for me this morning. Now, whether you need to do that at your chair or whether you want to come kneel at an altar and maybe make it a little more interactive, the altars are open. You do whatever you need to do this morning. No one's going to embarrass you. No one's going to call you out. But whatever it means to you this morning to find a fresh renewal with God, come back to Bethel. You say, well, I'm here. Isn't that enough? No, you need to say something to God. It's not enough just to be present and breathing. You need to cry out to God this morning and say, God, I'm back. God, mark this place in my life as a pivot point where I came closer to you and I took that right turn intentionally to engage with you and to get my life back on script. Listen, why don't you say to God this morning, God, I'm moved. When I see the sin and brokenness in Abraham and Sarah's life, God, I'm moved by that because I see some of the sin and brokenness in my own life. God, by looking at them, I see that I do some of the same things. And God, I want to repent of that. God, I don't want to be that kind of person, that kind of believer. Maybe your faith has wandered a little bit too like Abraham's did. I don't know whether you're in that season or not, but if you are, you just pivot right this morning and say, God, things aren't as they should be. 
And I'm doing the best I can this morning in my prayer to you, God, to pivot to you. And I know you'll meet me if I try. He is not far from you and he'll meet you if you try. He'll throw his arms around you and he'll bring you back into fellowship if you will ask him to. Ask him for forgiveness. Ask him to pull you up close. Listen, not all the sins are outward either. Some of them are inward sins. When Christians get rid of all their outward sins, they hold on to hatred and jealousy and bitterness and anger, strife and doubt and anxiety. Listen, say to God, I want to let those things go this morning, Father. Listen, everyone this morning, freshly say to God, God, I believe. I believe you are. I believe your word is true. I believe you love me. I believe I'm worth loving. Thank you, God, for speaking to me this morning. If you're here without Christ this morning, you've never received him as your Savior, and you're outside the covenant people of God, it's easy to break in to the covenant people of God. All you have to do is receive Christ as your Savior. By a simple prayer of faith, call out to him this morning. Let me guide you in such a prayer. Say to God this morning, dear God, I believe you are. I believe you sent your son to be my savior. Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. The savior of the world. And I believe you want to give your spirit to me. But God, I need to confess to you that I'm a sinner. Totally unworthy and outside of anything that could earn me your favor. So God, I confess my sinfulness to you. And I turn from that. And I turn to live for you this morning. Forgive me of my sins, Lord. Please forgive me. Wash my sins away in the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus, I accept you as my King and my Lord and my Savior. Send your Spirit into my heart to live forever. Help me to be part of the people of faith from this day forward. Thank you for loving me and thank you for saving me today. In Jesus' name, amen.